The Wheel of Crime podcast is a true crime podcast that includes graphic and explicit content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of October 26, 1965, at approximately 6.27 p.m., Officer Melvin Dixon was radioed to 3850 East New York Street, a large clapper double in a rough neighborhood on the east side of Indianapolis, to investigate a call about a possible dead girl. Upon arrival, he was met with a scene of chaos. The door was standing wide open, and there were children all throughout the house, some nervous, some scared. He was told that there was a girl in the house who was dead, that she had arrived at the home approximately 5.30 p.m., brutally beaten by a gang of boys. The only adult on the scene was an emaciated waif of a woman, nervous but emotionally composed. He asked her where the girl was, and then was taken upstairs and led to a room which held a single filthy mattress. Upon the mattress was a body of a severely emaciated and battered young girl wearing a pullover sweater and a pair of white capris that barely fit her. Her bruised and scarred arms laying limply across her breast, the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, along with the number three, burned and etched onto her stomach. The woman, who identified herself as Mrs. Gertrude Wright, told Officer Dixon that the girl had come into the house without a blouse, bare-chested and half-dead, clutching a note he sh- that she'd written. She gave the crumpled piece of paper to the officer, but the officer never read it. Officer Dixon asked Mrs. Wright the name of the girl, and she was identified as Sylvia Marie Likens, 16, and was not related to her. After talking to her for roughly 10 minutes, he called for the coroner. Detectives began to arrive on site, in the meantime, examining the scene. Officer Paul Harmon was ordered to stand guard at the door. The children who didn't live at the address were ultimately sent home after a brief questioning. The note given to Officer Dixon was given over to Sergeant Kaiser, and the photos were, were taken of the battered corpse. Across the street, where she had been raking leaves, limped a young girl who looked frantic. After being told of the death of the, of the young girl upstairs, who was her sister, the little girl named Jenny began to weep. Soon the deputy coroner arrived, inspecting the body. People kept coming to the house, wandering upstairs, interrupting the coroner as he worked. At one point, he looked up to see a young man with thick glasses hovering by the door. When asked why he was there, he said he was a neighbor and a friend of Gertie's. The coroner was left confused by what he had just seen. At the time, he assumed that this was the work of a gang or a madman and suspected no one in the home of wrongdoing. The body was removed from the home and taken to the morgue. One of Gertrude's daughters, Paula, arrived home and upon hearing the news, grabbed a Bible and began telling Jenny this is meant to be, and that if she wanted to live with them, they would treat her like a sister. Jenny, having no intention of being left behind in this house, limped to an officer and said to him, get me out of here and I will tell you everything. What she told them would turn the investigation on its head and expose one of the worst crimes in the history of Indiana against a single individual. This is the Wheel of Crime podcast, and this is a story of the torture murder of Sylvia Likens, murdered by the culmination of untold abuse and torture inflicted, by, inflicted upon her by her caretaker, Gertrude Banaszewski, Gertrude's children, and the other neighborhood kids, the youngest of which was 10 years old, a crime which shocked the nation and left, and left us with a simple question, why?
Episode number five, Kids Who Kill. In this episode, we are going to discuss the murder of Sylvia Likens. Many podcasts have covered this case, some in depth and some not so in depth. I'm probably not going to give you any more details than anybody else has, but I'm still going to cover as much information as I can. The thing about this case is that it was so sensationalized in the media at the time that some of the facts were skewed, um, as is the case with many unbelievable crimes and trials. Uh, Many details become more legend than facts, so I'm going to use testimony from the trial to shed light on the proven facts. I want to preface this by saying that this case in particular is one that has stuck with me for years. Many people are fascinated, who are fascinated with true crime, tend to have one or two cases that just won't leave them, um, like stick in their brains like glue. This is one of those cases for me. Anybody who's lived in Indianapolis for a while knows about Sylvia Likens. And it's the reason that I decided not only to listen to podcasts, but start one of my own. Back in 2008, I dove headfirst into the case because at the time I wanted to write a book about it. I devoured everything that I could find, which at the time wasn't much information as as is available today with the expansion of the internet. There had only been one book written about the case called The Indiana Torture Slayer, Torture Slaying, uh, Sylvia Likens, Ordeal and Death, a book written, um, I'm sorry, which was... Um, written by John Dean, but has been revised into a new uh, edition called House of Evil. He later changed his name to Natty Bumpo, but he, he was a reporter and a, and a writer for Indianapolis Star at the time of the uh, Benazuski trial and decided to write a publication about the case. Today, there are so many more resources available for the public. Um, for instance, Forrest Bowman Jr., an attorney, and the attorney for John Benazuski Jr. and Coy Hubbard, wrote a book called Sylvia... Uh, the Likens trial, which details an episode, or sorry, which details issues behind the scene of the trial as well as the transcript, and this is was published in 2014. There's an amazing website called SylviaLikens.com, which has compiled not only the entire court transcript but evidence presented in over 550 photographs, newspaper clippings, and there's a gallery where people have uploaded pictures of Indianapolis from the past. There's even a movie about the case called An American Crime starring Ellen Page. I didn't, the, it was okay. I didn't particularly care for it because I think they, they added more, more um, sensationalized stuff than actual fact, but it was still a good movie nonetheless. Now I've lived in Indianapolis all my life and I remember hearing about this case when I was a child. What I remember hearing though was that 
uh, it was a young girl who was staying with somebody who wasn't her parents that she was starved and kept in a basement and, and abused before she died and she was killed by her babysitter. But as I got older, I learned more of the details and in my 20s, I found out that my children's paternal grandparents went to school with some of the same kids involved um, in this story as they lived in the same neighborhood. And that was their paternal, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and that their paternal grand, grandmother's brother, so their great uncle, also knew the girl um, and was friends with her older sister, Diana. And because of this, it sparked an interest in me to learn more about what happened to her. And it became something of an obsession. Um, I talked to Tom, that's, that's um, my children's grandmother's brother, and he told me a, thing, a couple things about her, that she was just a really sweet girl, she was religious, um, she wasn't an angel, but, but she was a really good kid. Um, and I really wanted to get to know more about her. Um, and I thought it was a real shame that, that the world lost somebody so wonderful. So anyway, in 2008, the house in, on New York Street was still standing and it was for sale. So something told me to go inside, um, perhaps out of morbid curiosity, but also as somebody who was sensitive to certain vibrations and feelings, um, I wouldn't say psychic, but definitely sensitive. I wanted to be inside that place and see if anything still lingered. So I spoke to a real estate agent who gave me the numbers for the realtor's block pad on the door. I tried several, several times, but I couldn't get it to work. I was so frustrated. I could get into the double um, on the other side that faced Denny Street, but the one that I wanted to get into, I couldn't get into. Um, so I ended up going around to the back. I, mean, I, I even called him. I had him on the phone while I was putting it in, but it just for some reason would not work. And for a while I kept thinking, something doesn't want me to go in here, but I'm getting in this house. So I ended up going around the back just to see if there was another way in. You know, maybe the back door was open or there was a window open. Yeah, there was a window open. There was a window to the basement. The basement was small. It was nondescript and marred with spray paint all over the, the column of the stairs. We went upstairs and looked around. The house from the outside looks huge, but it was a double, uh, so therefore the inner workings are like halved off. Uh, one part of the double, like I said, faced New York Street, the other faced Denny Street. What struck me the most about uh, this side of the double was how small it was. We came up through the basement to a tiny hallway and immediately to the right was a small bare kitchen uh, with a back door to the left uh, and to the left, the doors uh, which led to the basement and the closet, the stairs, and then a small room, perhaps like a dining room. And directly across from that was, uh, where the, uh, was the front door where you entered into a small little living room kind of thing. When I say it's small, I mean it. Comfortably, the house could probably fit a family of four, maybe five. At the time of this case, there were seven kids. Now, these are just Gertrude's kids seven kids and one adult living here and that was before all the neighborhood kids came kind of came over and started hanging out and uh, before the girls in the story uh, came into the picture the upstairs wasn't much better uh, three small bedrooms two that looked out towards new york street and then another one at the back of the house next to the bathroom and then a, another hall closet made up the rest of the house graffiti covered the walls of the the master bedroom somebody somebody had just spray painted crude words all over the walls um, they had also crumpled up pieces of paper in that second room and left them scattered about. I lingered a little bit longer in this one, because this is the room where they found her, lying prone on that filthy mattress, nothing but skin and bones and sores and bruises. What I think I felt in that room was my own grief, knowing what had happened there more than 40 years ago. Uh, I didn't feel anything negative in the house, 
um, only trying to place the story in the space in which it had happened, which in and of itself felt strange. Like, how could such a horrible thing happen in this house and the energy not be stuck inside the walls? It left me with a strange kind of dissonance. I imagine what it must have been like to be one of the ones carrying her up those stairs, panicked and scared because this is no longer a game. This is real life and someone's dead. I went back downstairs playing over significant, uh, significant points of the case in relation to each room. The bathroom where they hastily tried to revive her. Uh, the bedroom where she was ultimately found by the police. Um, the living room where they made her insert Coke bottles into herself for punishment and for their entertainment, frankly, um, and then the basement. Before leaving through the front door, now we were able to open it from the inside and get out. <laughs> Luck would have it, right? I opened up the basement, uh, the door to the basement, and I stared down into that cement hole. I imagine what it must have been like to, to be thrown down them stairs, to be kicked down the stairs. Kicked down into the dark and beaten within an inch of my life simply for being a pretty young girl. What was it like to be one of the ones to heap the punishments onto a girl who did nothing to deserve being treated like such a throwaway piece of tissue other than somebody telling them that she said this about them? Did they ever feel sorry for her? Did they ever realize that what they were doing was wrong before she ended up succumbing to her torture? Did they ever consider that she would die? And if so, why didn't that stop them? How could it have happened? Why did it happen? And why did nobody say anything until it was too late? Join me as we discuss the brutal murder and torture of Sylvia Likens, murdered by the neighborhood kids under the direction of the only adult in the house. To get started, let's touch on Sylvia's family and background and how she and her sister Jenny ended up staying with the Banaszewskis in the summer of 1965. Her parents were Lester and Betty Likens who provided a less than stable life for their five children. They married as teenagers in 1944. They did whatever they could for money and by 1965 they were working the carnival circuits as a concession stand dealer. This was and is still a popular occupation in the Midwest where there are county, state, county and state fairs galore. It's a lucrative operation and occupation but it demands a lot of time and effort on the part of the concession owners and they have to sacrifice a lot in order to make this happen. And a lot of times what they sacrifice is time with their children and their family. Betty had given birth to fraternal twins, Danny Kay and Diana May, in 1947. The Likens family made headlines when the twins were three months old after being kicked out of their home for going to see uh, a simple movie. In the Indianapolis Star, the article talks about how Betty had to put her three-month-old twins in a boarding house so she could go look for a place to stay. Lester couldn't go with her because he had to return to his job making $35 a week at an industrial plant because they needed the money to pay $23 a week for the care of the babies. And then the other 12 was allocated for other obligations. They had been living in the sleeping room in the home of Reverend Edward Stewart, paying only $10 a month. Uh, no, I'm sorry, $10 a week. Um, so he was, so Reverend Stewart was a pastor at the Holmes Avenue Free Methodist Church. And one of the children one day was sick so they decided they're gonna stay home from church, but eventually the baby felt better and the Likens took their children to see a movie. When they returned, Stewart ordered them out of the house and told them to move. According to the article, 
like the lichen said that they had no ill will towards the man because he felt like what he was doing was right, even though they left their things behind and were homeless. Sylvia was born on January 3, 1949, and the following year, on February 13, 1950, Betty gave birth to another set of fraternal twins, Jenny Faye and Benny Ray. Uh, several people have remarked that Sylvia had said that she felt like the oddball in the family because she was born between two sets of twins. Um, the Lakins' marriage was unstable, and the family had a hard time putting down roots. The children would know no fewer than 14 different residences because the family moved so often. Once Betty and Lester got onto the carnival circuit, the kids saw less and less of their parents and were sent to stay with relatives, usually Lester's mother. Sylvia's, Sylvia was described by others as a friendly, religious girl who was cute, bubbly, and fun to be around. She liked to dance, and people, called her, people had taken a call on her cookie because she was such a sweet person. And she was a huge fan of the Beatles. She just sounds like a typical, normal, fun-loving girl. And she always had an upbeat and positive attitude. That's what everybody said. In the summer of 65, the girls were living with Betty, who at the time had been yet again separated from her husband in Indianapolis. Soon after moving to Euclid Avenue on the city's east side, on July 3rd, Betty was arrested for shoplifting. The girls had been out with their mother at a discount house when Betty went, on, went to try on a pair of pedal pushers. Instead of paying for them, she stuffed them in her bag. Jenny pulled Sylvia through another door, stating that she didn't want to be around them. They didn't, she didn't want to be around their mom when she did stuff like that. They waited for their mother on the other side of the, of the parking lot, but she had been detained before leaving the store. Now, she was allowed to give her daughters $2 for dinner before she was taken away. Uh, they had made some friends in the neighborhood with a girl named Darlene McGuire, who, was introduced, who had introduced the girls to the Banaszewski children uh, that day, stopping in at the house at 3850 East New York Street. Mrs. Wright, as she was introduced to the girls, asked Jenny to stay for supper, but she said that she, was, that she only would if Sylvia could stay as well. She couldn't understand why the invitation wasn't extended to her sister. Um, also, they went, they went home afterwards to an empty apartment without their mother, and the next day they were hanging out with Paula, Banaszewski, and Darlene, making friends and being children, and laughing and having a good time and living their best life. Now, it was around this time that Lester, having found out about his wife's incarceration, um, with, along with his son Danny, came looking for the girls at the house on Euclid, but found nobody home. Lester told the court at trial that Sylvia had dropped out of school when she was 16 earlier that year, but uh, he and Betty had wanted the girls to start attending regular classes and had planned to send them to live in Lebanon uh, with, his, with his parents. Now, his mom was also keeping uh, Benny, who was Jenny's twin. Uh, Danny was an adult, so he could just do what he wanted, and Diana was married, but she couldn't keep the girls either. Um, so asking, after asking around the neighborhood, the men found the girls at the house on East New York Street. Um, and I, and, the, and the, from what the book says, from uh, John Dean's book, it was, in the, it was probably closer to midnight when, when he came knocking on the door and found them. Um, so at this time, Gertrude introduced herself to them as Mrs. Dennis Wright, saying that her husband was in the military and stationed in Germany. Now, though she was possibly trying to save face in a conservative world where unmarried women with children were highly scrutinized, and looked down upon, this to me establishes a pattern of lying to which she felt no shame, truth stretching to fit her narrative. And we're going to find more of this later on. Now, here's where the waters get muddied. Um, Lester testifies, testified that Gertrude offered 
to let he and Danny sleep on the couch overnight. They never went further in, uh, in the house than the living room, though. If they had, they would have found out that they had hardly any silverware. I think they had, at one time they had three spoons, but two of them ended up getting lost. They had one plate between them all, between all of them, one bowl, no stove. They had a hot plate which they heated up all their food on. But they never went past the living room. Uh, the next morning they uh, they went and they got Betty from uh, her parents' house and then returned to the house in New York Street. It was then that Gertrude, uh, Gertrude seeing an opportunity to make some money, offered to take care of the children and treat them like her own, according to Lester. She said she actually said that, or he said that she actually said that. Everyone agreed because Gertrude had kids the same age and they thought that it would be better not to keep shuffling the girls here or there. He offered to send Gertrude $20 a week and ended up paying a total of $300. Now you may think that's not a lot of money and it's not in today's money, but back then $20 uh, was equal to $163 today. So every week you'd be getting $163 and when you have nothing, that's gonna pay your rent. And uh, a total of $300 would have equaled $2,443.41. Not a bad gig for just letting some girls stay over the house. Now this was a lot for an unemployed mother of seven and she figured that since there were kids there constantly anyway, two more wouldn't hurt. Uh, for that kind of money and Lester said to her the girls have been allowed to do whatever they want their mom's been soft on them so don't be soft you know be hard on them they need a firm hand so basically what he was saying is you discipline them the way you want to so the first few weeks were fine without any incidences uh, they all seemed to get along Shit didn't really hit the fan until Lester's first payment was late. Now, before we go any further, we need to look into the background of the lady of the house in order to maybe possibly draw the lines and, and connect the dots from where she came from and what she ultimately was convicted of perpetrating upon another human being. In order to understand how a woman and a mother of seven could have done something so horrible, I want to touch on the background of Gertrude Banaszewski briefly. Uh, she was born Gertrude Nadine Van Fossen on September 19, 1928, in the Depression era of Indianapolis to a, a working-class family of uh, Dutch immigrants. Her mother's name was Molly Myrtle, and her father's name was Hugh Sr. Not much is known about her formative years, but what we do know is that at the age of 11, her father died of a heart attack right in front of her, and this was roughly 1939-1940, so already she has a few strikes against her. Um, she was the third of six children, so she's a, she's a middle child born in the Depression era, now without a father, and five other siblings, all depending on her mother, with whom she was rumored to have a really bad relationship with. Um, she quit school at the age of 16 and left her, left her home, married a man about two years older uh, named John Banaszewski, and he would eventually go on to become a Beach Grove police officer. They had four kids uh, before they divorced about 10 years later. So after this divorce, she moves to Kansas, marries a man named Edward Guthrie, and it only lasts about three months because he hated her kids. She moves back to Indianapolis and marries John again. So he, she remarries John Banaszewski. They stay together for another seven years and have two more kids. Um, in 1963, they, they divorce for good, and around this time, she meets Dennis Wright, who's a man, or who is a man who's much younger than her. Um, I think he was in his early 20s. She's at this time 35. So there's a huge age difference. Um, and he would go on to really beat her, abuse her, 
he, he was not a good guy to her. So there's no dispute that he abused her, and there were also rumors that John was abusive, but that was never substantiated. So here she is, thrice divorced, living in sin with Dennis, and had a child out of wedlock. Now remember, this was 1960s. Things aren't uh, today as morally rigid as they were back then, and it was scandalous for a, for a woman to have relations with a man with whom she wasn't married. Uh, so she has seven children, no viable means of income because she's not working outside of the home. She's doing odd things like babysitting, ironing, sewing, just things like that. Um, and she would sporadically get support checks from John and Dennis sometimes, but that wasn't enough to keep food on the table. So she's asthmatic and she chain smoked because of the stress of not being able to make the ends meet, not being able to put food on the table and having to live in a poor area of town. So food was scarce, money was scarce, and therefore love was scarce. So what happens to children who grow up with a distant, hard mother who can barely keep up with them, who's often sick and not emotionally available for her children. They grow up really hard. And I suspect that maybe some of the children were targets. And once these girls came into the house, then they no longer were a target. So everybody joined in on the fun and we'll get there. Uh, but anyway, Gertrude would have a total of 13 pregnancies, seven which were live births, uh, six which were miscarriages. Now, in April of 65, she had suffered her last miscarriage, and that coupled with the fact that her eldest daughter, Paula, had run off with a married man to Kentucky, uh, she, she was really upset about this because she expected Paula to be there to help her with the other kids. Um, because she wasn't, that kind of left her in a state of depression. Now, if you dig a bit into the psychology of this woman and her household, it's obvious that those who knew her uh, said that she was more like a teenager herself. Some speculated that the death of her father at an early age, along with having married so young and having children so young, um, and just, just her marrying so young to get out of her house may have stunted her mentally. Um, but who knows? There could have been a lot of uh, factors that contributed to this. But with that house being like a beacon for young people, it only added fuel to the fire. So this kind of was like a perfect storm. All those good-looking teenage girls in one house is going to attract the attention of teenage boys in the neighborhood. And it wasn't just the girls that the boys liked. They seemed to like Gertrude as well. Rumor and speculation has it that Gertrude was having an intimate relationship with Ricky Hobbs, who lived only two houses down on Denny Street from the Banaszewski home. He wasn't a friend of any of the children in the house and only came to visit Gertie, as he called her. So what does that mean exactly? Well, that means that pretty teenage girls who come to stay in their home become competition, and it set in motion the horrible events that would escalate in October of that year. Now, it's hard to put a chronological order to the abuse that Jenny and Sylvia both suffered. Both girls were spanked, smacked, and punished, but Sylvia took the brunt of the abuse. She was very protective of Jenny because of her having polio as a young girl and still having that pronounced limp when she walked. The girls enrolled in school and Sylvia attended Arsenal Technical High School, known simply as Tech around, the, around Indianapolis, uh, with Stephanie and Paula Banaszewski. And when the, when the girls first came to the house, Stephanie and her brother John were staying with their father for a few weeks, uh, but soon they, they ended up joining the rest of the kids in the house uh, in time to go to school. And Sylvia and Stephanie would end up becoming really good friends. It, it would only take a week for the girls to get a taste of what was to come. Their father's $20 payment didn't show up and this absolutely enraged Gertrude. She dragged the girls upstairs, smacked and spanked them, stating, I took care of you little bitches for a week for nothing. The money arrived the next day, just having got caught up in the mail, but no apology was ever given, ever. After this, 
It seemed like any slight would cause Gertrude to go into a rage and blame Sylvia. She accused her of teaching her children to loiter in front of grocery stores, stealing bottles for cats. This was during a time in Indiana when, when they still did recycling for money, and Lester had taught his daughters how to pick up some spare money by turning in pop bottles. So you just take all your glass, glass pop bottles to, like, say, a grocery store or something, and they give you money for it. I thought it was a pretty cool deal. But this didn't matter to Gertrude. When she heard about it, she whipped both girls with a quarter-inch thick fraternity-style paddle. Um, if she felt too weak to do it, she'd turn over punishment duties to Paula, who gladly took up the task. Around the 1st of August, Paula wrote, broke her wrist hitting Sylvia in the face after Gertrude convinced Paula that Sylvia had said something awful about her. And though she ended up with a cast, she bragged to the people uh, at church that she almost killed Sylvia. They would pass it off as her, boast, as her being boastful and childish. Um, and, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't the nicest kind of girl, so they just thought, well, maybe this is just her. So Paula used that cast to further beat and torture Sylvia and threatened to break her face with it a couple times. There were so many false accusations against Sylvia, and part of me wonders if they begin to believe their own lies that they would tell uh, to the other people, or to the other kids in the, in, the, in the house. So Paula would come home and say that Sylvia said she was a prostitute, and Gertrude told Stephanie that she, that she heard Sylvia calling her a prostitute. They all got these rumors started so that it started turning the other people against Sylvia. It was, it was kind of methodical and really, really messed up. Um, so anyway, here we go. So when you hear the story being told, it's hard to put the abuse in chronological order. She was hit so many times that they lost count. Um, she was accused of stealing money from Gertrude, spreading rumors that the other girls were prostitutes, stealing gym shorts so that she could attend gym class, eating too much food at church functions, etc. Now eating, eating out of turn was like a huge sin in that house. So if, if one person ate something, the other people would get really mad because they didn't get any of it. Gertrude once accused her of smelling hamburger on her breath before beating the crap out of her. It's very easy to get lost in the details of the abuse and then compartmentalize it. It's easy to say that this happened and that happened, but let what this girl really went through sink in. She was verbally, mentally, and psychologically abused on top of the horrendous physical abuse that she suffered. She would start, she would often start rumor, or Gertrude would often start rumors that Sylvia accused the other girls in the house of being prostitutes, like I said, which would eventually start turning the kids against each other. So one time the, one time the girls were sitting around talking about uh, boys and the such, you know, and Sylvia had admitted to getting under the covers with a boy, but it went no further than that. But, of course, that gave Gertrude something to latch on to. Gertrude asked her why she did this, and she said, I don't know. Gertrude then told her that she looked fat and she was probably pregnant. This then prompted Paula to shove her out of a chair that she was sitting in and told her that she wasn't fit to sit in a chair, even though Sylvia was still a virgin and Paula herself was, I think, two months pregnant at the time of that incident. Now, the Lycans would return home to visit their daughters and was happy to learn that they were back in school. They didn't check up on their studies, however, and didn't check in with the girls' teachers or the principal or anything like that. Otherwise, they would have seen discrepancies in the stories because Sylvia's last day of school was October 6, 1965. Some people wonder why the girls never told their parents what was going on. Now you have to understand what life was like back in 1965, especially in, in a conservative Indiana. You don't talk to others outside your, outside your house about the happenings going on inside your house. They didn't consider whippings abuse, it was discipline. Jenny tried several times to tell her sister Diane what was going on, but it was blown off as being that the girls didn't want to obey the rules and that they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. 
another girl, uh, Judy Duke, who was brought into the trial as a witness, um, as she had been into the house and witnessed some of the goings on, told her mother, and she was also blown off, or she also blew it off, as if Sylvia deserved it if she was being punished. Not much was done about, about, about things back then, and domestic violence wasn't viewed as a big deal. So if a man beat his wife inside the house, the police did nothing if summoned. It was a, quote, domestic issue, and not for them to involve themselves with, according to some of my older relatives. Now, why would the girls risk telling Lester and Betty? To them, it would mean that their parents would be mad at them for being punished so much. Gertrude would know what they were t that they were talking about what was going on in the house, and the backlash would become ten times worse. There was no guarantee that their parents would believe them and then remove them from the house, so they felt stuck. So when people talk about this case and they say, why didn't she, why didn't she say anything? Why didn't they do anything? This is what I always think of. This is what comes to my mind every time. That poor girl didn't think anybody would actually listen uh, and, and believe that things were as bad as she claimed. Eventually, the abuse would land squarely on Sylvia's shoulders. Gertrude had begun to encourage her children and some of the neighborhood kids to participate in, quote, punishing Sylvia. Children trust their mother and their elders, and they don't think that their parents are going to lie to them. So if Gertrude said that Sylvia called her a name, then she must have done exactly that, because mom wouldn't lie. If Gertrude said Sylvia was spreading rumors about the girls, no one questioned it. Now, part of me thinks that the Banaszewski children was probably, bah, sorry, were probably just happy that she wasn't focusing her rage on them, and therefore participated in the abuse, just to make her happy and keep on her good side. She must deserve what we were giving her because mom wouldn't lie, you know. So after Gertrude started the rumor that Sylvia was, uh, had accused Stephanie of being a prostitute, her boyfriend, who was a kid from the neighborhood called, uh, or named Coy Hubbard, uh, he began to focus some of his rage on Sylvia as well. So he admitted to practicing judo on her with hard kicks and body flips. Uh, he would take this girl, this little tiny girl, and flip her over his back, not caring if she broke bones or was more severely injured. This is how the abuse escalated. Over a three-month period, this healthy, vibrant 16-year-old girl who loved to dance to Beatles records wasted away from malnutrition. She was used as a punching bag, a kicking post, and an ashtray. Lit cigarettes were extinguished on her flesh despite her protests. I really want you guys to think about this. This, I, me describing this seems more like a story than actual reality, but this was the reality that she had to endure. In an interview with Al Hunter, host of a series called Bumps in the Night, this is a, uh, I'm not sure if this is a radio program or if this is a, uh, a news article that comes out, but he, he hosts this particular section. He interviewed Judy Duke, and she said that she'd only seen Sylvia on three occasions and knew her as that naked girl in that house. She described Sylvia as tall and thin with dark hair and her teeth knocked out. Now, Sylvia's front tooth was chipped from an accident after running into her brother at a young age, but that doesn't mean that her teeth hadn't been broken from all the abuse that she suffered. Judy described in the interview how the last time she saw Sylvia, she was sitting in a chair naked and a group of children were dancing around her, each of them kicking her uh, violently as, as they passed around her. And Judy tried to leave, but Gertrude grabbed her and forced her into the circle, demanding that she kick the girl. Judy refused, so Gertrude grabbed her leg and forced a kick at the girl's shin. She was able to get out of the house, but she never came back. Now, I mentioned earlier, um, in the same interview, uh, Judy says that she told her mom several times about what was going on, and later, after Sylvia was buried, her mom took her to the gravesite, and uh, her mom started kind of crying. She was like, I wish I had just taken it seriously, or 
you know, I wish I had done something then, but really I mean, there, there was nothing anybody could have done at this point. It was, it was so well covered up because everybody was participating in it. There were threats that if you tell anybody, your ass is next. Paula threatened a couple people, um, and I, I want to say John did too, but I'm, I'm not sure about that one. I know Paula did. Now, neighbors would later report uh, seeing Sylvia outside with black eyes. A social worker was called to investigate a, a report of a girl with running sores on her body. She was told that Sylvia did have sores on her body, but from bad personal hygiene, like she doesn't bathe. Um, and she was also told that Sylvia was thrown out of the house because she'd become a prostitute, which is why she had sores all over her body as well. They told their sister Diane on one occasion that they had seen her at the park, um, that they were being paddled with a thick board, but Diana just blew it off as if they were exaggerating. Diana had tried to come by to visit a few times, but was sent away more than likely because Gertrude didn't want Diana to see the condition that her sister was in. One time she saw Jenny in the yard and tried to talk to her, but Jenny ran away saying that she wasn't allowed to talk to her. Jenny was also forced a few times to hit Sylvia under the threat of violence herself. Sylvia was forced to endure incredibly hot baths nearly every day to cleanse her of her sins. Sometimes soap would be poured on her and then hot water thrown at her. Paula would rub salt in her wounds. She was kicked in the groin multiple times. That became a favorite torture method of Gertrude's, is kicking her in the, in the groin. There were several incidences where Gertrude would force her in front of not only the children in the house, but the neighborhood kids too, to put Coke bottles into her vagina. Okay, so I'm going to have to have a small aside here because this is a very brutal and nasty act to visit upon a child. you got to remember, this was the 60s, and they didn't have plastic bottles back then. They had thick glass bottles with caps that were very, very sharp uh, with jagged little points on them. It's never been clarified enough for my taste if it was an empty bottle or a full bottle with, it, with a cap on. Some say empty, some say full, so I'm not really sure. But either way, it was uh, this girl was a virgin. Now... Uh, this might be a little TMI, but many young, girl, many young virgin girls can't even tolerate putting in a tampon, let alone a, a glass Coke bottle. At the autopsy, it was said that her vagina was swollen, almost shut, and lacerated, but, not, but that her hymen was intact, but her, her vagina was not so lacerated as from rape. Um, it, was, it proved that this girl was not, in fact, a prostitute, nor was she pregnant, as her twisted caretaker convinced herself that she was. Um, there has been speculation as to, you know, all the abuse that she suffered, why, did, why wasn't it sexual? Why did, it was sexual without being sexual, you know, because of the insertion of the Coke bottle, kicking her in the groin, um, calling her names and a prostitute. There, some people have said they think that it's because they viewed sex as dirty and if she was a prostitute, then she would have to have an STD or something. And so she would be considered dirty. So nobody wanted to touch her. Um, Personally, I, I think that's a blessing that, that at, at least that wasn't visited upon her. She had everything but that done to her. It was horrible. Horrible. Okay, so because of the groin kicks and being forced to put things inside of herself, eventually she became incontinent. This, not only, brought, or this only brought on more abuse, and since she couldn't stop herself from wetting the bed, she was forced to sleep in the basement with a puppy or a dog. Some people said it was a puppy. Some people said it was two dogs. I don't know, but if you can't feed your kids, how the hell are you going to take care of a dog? But anyway, uh, she was uh, she was from then on uh, kept completely naked all the time. She wasn't allowed to use a toilet unless she learned not to soil herself, which is kind of setting herself up for, set, they're all setting her up for failure. Uh, she was tied to the bed and only let it from her restraints when they wanted to beat on her. 
They would haul her to the top of the stairs just to shove her back down again, purely for their own enjoyment. One of the consequences of her incontinence was being forced to consume her own excrement and sometimes that of the baby. Yeah. I believe this happened around the beginning of October when Sylvia was no longer attending classes. Gertrude made up stories that Sylvia had run away when asked why she wasn't attending church and why she was missing school. The reverend from their church had come by to visit Gertrude one day and the subject of Sylvia came up. She was told, I'm sorry, she told the reverend that Sylvia had begun skipping classes and making advances on older women, oh, I'm sorry, older men for money. He returned a few weeks later after that visit. She complained that Sylvia had told a couple people at school that Paula was going to have a baby. She told him that, quote, I know my daughter and I know Sylvia. Paula's not going to have a baby. Sylvia is. I find this statement to be humorous. Either she was really delusional and believed the lie she told herself and everyone else, um, or she just knew she was flat out lying. Paula had run off at the beginning of the year with a married man to Kentucky, but she knows her daughter wouldn't be pregnant, right? Even though she was. On October 23rd, Ricky Hobbs came by the house after school. The subjects of tattoos and brandings came up and Gertrude asked Ricky if he knew how to tattoo. She announced to Sylvia, since you branded my daughters, I will brand you. She grabbed a pen and began to write on a piece of paper exactly what they were going to put on Sylvia. I am a prostitute and proud of it. She instructed her daughter Shirley to get a sewing needle and heat it up. While Ricky, Shirley, and Marie held Sylvia down, Gertrude began to write on the girl's stomach. She only got as far as I and apostrophe before handing it over to Ricky to finish because she got too sick to do it. He would go on to testify that he hit Sylvia four or five times for flinching during the branding. Shirley and Ricky decided they weren't done yet and heated up the end of a hook screw to put the letter S between her breasts. Now whether this was for Sylvia, slut, or slave is not entirely clear. Ricky got the first part on and then he and Shirley ordered Jenny to put on the second part. Though she was terrified of the retribution, she refused to hurt her sister so Shirley put on the rest, but got it on there backwards so it looked like a number three instead. After it was over, Gertrude mocked Sylvia by saying, you can't get married now or ever get undressed in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? Sylvia said simply, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there now. That evening, Coy Hubbard would, would practice his judo flips on her. Sylvia was forced to write two letters to her parents during her stay at the Banaszewski house. The first one was something of a confessional and reads as follows. Dear Mom and Dad, I'm writing to tell you what I've done for the last two weeks. I went to school and took a gym suit out of the girl's, girl's gym locker. I went to a party and was going to take some Cokes out of the Coke machine. I let Ronnie and Donnie Simpson have intercourse with me. Danny and Jenny knows about it. In California, I was under the covers with Mike Eason. Jenny and Benny seen Mike's pants down. I was trying to get Jenny in trouble with me. I told lies on mommy to Grandma Martin. I hit a, a three-year-old girl in the, our three-year-old kid in the face and spanked it on the butt at the house out on Post Road. I stole things in California when we lived out there. The reason I got fired from that job in Post Road is because I hit a boy in the face. I've done things that cause a lot of trouble. I always want mommy and daddy to back up so I could get my way when I went when I lived with mommy. I went out with a married man driving around in a convertible. I took ten dollars from Gertie Wright. I knocked Jimmy B off my back. I hit Shirley B for no reason. This is all the truth. Jenny has been behaving herself. Signed, Sylvia Likens. 
This letter was written shortly after the girls began to stay with them, and I believe this was meant to humiliate and humble Sylvia by confessing things, confessing two things that never happened, and to make her parents believe she was a horrible person. This, and, and I think, too, that was also part to make her also feel like she was a bad person. Uh, the second letter was written after the branding took place. Sylvia started to write, Dear Mom and Dad, but for some reason, Gertrude told her to stop and write this. To Mr. and Mrs. Likens. Now, I'm, I'm not, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to write something to my parents, it's not going to be Dear Mr. and Mrs. Megan's parents. You know what I mean? So anyway, dear Mr. or to Mr. and Mrs. Likens, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something, so I got in the car, and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything I could to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost do uh, Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. Okay, first of all, there's a couple a couple weird things about this. Obviously, making her write something like this is, in Gertrude's mind, she's saying, this is how we're going to get out of this, okay? But what she's not considering is the fact that if they beat her up and put sores all over her face and her body, why were they the sores at least a month old most of them were in different stages of healing so right there is a huge red flag to somebody looking into this shortly after writing this note Gertrude told John jr. and Jenny that they were gonna have to take her out and dump her in the woods this act alone is very telling um, to me it means that Gertrude knew that that Sylvia was gonna die and wanted her out of the house when it happened so she wouldn't get into trouble that's not the act of a person who is insane. That's the act of a manipulative person who wants everyone to think she's innocent by getting rid of the evidence. But obviously she's stupid because the girl was in her care. She would still be held responsible. Sylvia heard them talking and made a last-ditch effort to escape. She managed to hobble to the front door and almost made it to the porch before being dragged back into the house by Gertrude and, couple, and Coy Hubbard. For this, she was beaten the head with a curtain rod and stomped in her head. Sylvia was then tied up in the basement that evening. The next day, Gertrude and John beat her again. Gertrude tried to hit her in the, with a chair, but it broke before it could hit her. Gertrude tried to beat her with a paddle, but ended up coming back. it ended up coming back and smacking her right in the face, so she got a black eye for that. Coy Hubbard stepped in and beat her unconscious with a broomstick. Neighbors said they heard scraping and pounding coming from the basement, but they didn't call the police because it stopped around 3 a.m. Ricky Hobbs came by the house on October 26, around 4 p.m., testifying that Sylvia was laying on the floor in the kitchen on a blanket. He said he stopped in to say hello and stayed perhaps five minutes before going home to change clothes and eating dinner. He returned to the house around 5.30. When he came in, he found Gertrude standing by the east wall, crying. Stephanie was kneeling down beside Sylvia. He asked what was going on, and Stephanie said she thought she was dead. Ricky testified that when he bent over Sylvia, he heard her breathing labored, that she was having trouble inhaling and exhaling as if something was stuck in her throat. He says at this time he gave her mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, but Stephanie testified that she's the one that did that, and she didn't see Ricky trying to resuscitate her. Noticing her skin was cold, they thought a warm bath would help. They ran upstairs, or Stephanie ran upstairs to draw a bath and then help Ricky get her up the stairs. They got her into the bathtub with her clothes on at Gertrude's insistence, but nothing helped. 
they took her into the bedroom and laid her on the mattress. But as it would prove, nothing would help at this point. She was already gone. Thank you for tuning in to part one of Kids Who Kill, the Torture Murder of Sylvia Likens. Next week, we're going to bring part two, and we're going to cover the trial and everything that happened afterwards. Again, thanks for listening, and have a great week, and don't be a dick.